1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Okay, Shala, we are ready to do the second part of this Come, Follow Me we ended up spending an hour and a half on a single chapter, um, <laughs> which yep. I guess if there's any chapter in the Book of Mormon that you could spend an hour and a half on, then twelve of Third makes sense because that's like Matthew chapter five, right? Right. So that's it. Seems to be currently kind of your your favorite thing for the past year or so, and so it makes sense that we would spend that much. Time on that. I don't know how much time we're going to spend on thirteen through sixteen, but in any case, uh, there's there's quite a few great little things in here. I mean, obviously, none of Christ's words are idle, but a lot of really great instruction here. So let's go ahead and dig into it. Sounds good. Chapter thirteen, you know, is is a continuation of a sermon at the temple, very similar, almost exactly like sermon on the mount. And same with chapter 14. Um, but in 15, we get a more unique uh, Book of Mormon discussion here where Christ talks to the Nephites about the law of Moses and, and specifically how how they're supposed to look at that now. Towards the end of 15 and then getting into 16, we have a, a sheep discussion here, which is a great uh, metaphor for how the people are to be gathered and how they're supposed to see themselves and each other and their relationship with Christ. And so, all interesting there lots of uh, themes to, to bring up. So, starting with chapter 13 here, I the first thing that uh, kind of caught my eye on this that I, I don't know that I've thought in depth about before was this phrase here, after doing alms for the poor, that says in, in verse 3, Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. And I think it seems a little obvious at first, you know, that this is saying, hey, you shouldn't uh, take pride in the fact that you're helping people. But I think there's a little more to that. And there's there's a little bit of symbolism that can go with the right and left hand stuff here. I just like the concept here that we ought to be so accustomed, maybe that's not the right word, but I'm going to use it anyway, accustomed to helping people that it becomes basically like second nature to us, right? That we just help people without really considering any other implications of it or or consequences of it, so to speak, right?
1: Right. And and I would add that one of the things we need to remember, and we talked about this last time, is that each one of these – little vignettes. We you know, we're going to talk about alms to the poor, he's going to talk about praying, you know, then we'd talk about forgiveness and fasting and treasure and all of these things that he's bringing up in these chapters are little descriptive vignettes about what it means to be a beatitude type person. So we went over that last week or earlier this week rather, a couple days ago, when we talked about, you know, being poor in spirit and mourning and being meek and hungering and thirsting and being merciful. And the purity of heart and to be peacemakers and the persecution that comes from that. All of those things are in one systematic kind of eternal round we talked about. Now Christ is opening up like, okay, now this is the kind of person you are. We talked about Makarios and about what it means to be a blessed kind of person, which means, you know, if God were here, this is, this is what God will be doing as uh, this is what I'm doing kind of a thing. Yeah, this is just absolutely fantastic, and I love that. It's this we lose basically ourself. Remember, your ego's gone now. That's what the poor spirit thing is. Is you're already emptying out that ego. You're not scared anymore. You have no connections to this light, to this uh, this planet anymore, or to the the things of this world anymore. But yet, being meek, you've inherited the earth. So now there's just this new way of life that once you've really comprehended the beatitude way of being. This is just, these are just the natural things about what a person does. And they're so revolutionary to how they were perceiving things before under the law of Moses, because the law of Moses was always a type in a shadow, but it was always in the head, right? To live the law of Moses was always in the head because, you know, X amount of steps on on the Sabbath kind of thing, right? Do this, don't do that. If you do all the things you're supposed to do, you're good with God. If you don't do all the things, if you do all the things you're, what am I trying to say? <laughs> If you don't do all the things you're not supposed to do, then you're good to, You're good with God, right? So it's all about the head. And what this is coming into being is saying you know, that was never the point. The point was always to try to use the law of Moses as a type for you to understand what kind of person you are. So I don't look at this when he says he's come to fulfill the law. It's not that he's come to do away with it, as if like that was one thing and it's gone now. But rather... He's coming to show us what the heart of it always was. And that's, you know, the higher, law. we talk about lower and higher law, but it's just all one law. He's just coming to show us what the heart of the whole matter was. And in this way, yeah, it's, this is just what you do. You don't think anymore about yourself. You are gone. Now we're going to be thinking about this new poor in spirit person who's now a peacemaker. And that's where we're going with this.
0: Yeah, as, as a reading through, especially chapter 13, 14 as well, but especially 13, you know, this idea arises, which, which may seem obvious, but I think there's, there's a point about it that bears pointing out, just like you said. It's that Christ cares more about our relationship with him and the father than he does about any particular religious practice. And while religious practice is designed, if, if that's the right word, to sort of enhance that relationship or to to help us to develop that relationship within us, He's telling us we have to be careful that it doesn't hinder it as well, because it's maybe just as likely to hinder it as it is to help it. And so uh, always the point, right of the law being that it's not just what we know about it, but what our where our heart is, what are we experiencing? as we participate as we do these things is are are we really experiencing that so again that making sure that the religious practice is actually helping that it's not getting in the way of or becoming the focus in and of itself
1: right yeah i love that and right here in in chapter 13 verse uh, verse 5 we go from him talking about giving alms to the poor so now we're going to talk about prayer and he says, listen, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not do as the hypocrites, for they'd love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, th- I love this because hypocrites, but they're actually praying. Right? So why, why is he calling them a hypocrite? Well, it's a hypocrite to the actual point. You know, they say that they're doing the point, but they're not. They say that they're adhering to the to the heart because they're adhering to the absoluteness of the law, but they don't get the heart. See, there's where the hypocrisy comes in, because they're completely disregarding the heart. And, and you know, throughout the scriptures, we we see them talking about it's like you, the leaders of this people, and you don't understand the law of Moses, right? Isn't that a who's like you pretend yeah. to be up here and to teach these things, but you don't even understand what the law is? to It's supposed a bit of Christ do.
0: talking to Nicodemus too, but yes, especially a
1: Right. And so we have this here where, you know, Christ is coming in, he's giving the heart to the whole thing. And he's saying, you know, when you're a true beatitude person and you've emptied your ego out and you just stand there in your mourning and your meekness, then what's it going to look like to pray? Well, it's not like these people who are following the letter of the law. They're hypocrites because they're saying they get the law, but they don't. And when they stand to pray, they love, the, they love to stand in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets so that they be, may be seen by men. But that's not the point. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou shut thy door and, put the, and, and pray unto thy Father who is in secret, and the Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, I think that's really interesting, too, is because what does a beatitude person have to worry about having things rewarded openly? You know, it's one of those things that uh, has always intrigued me because once you have become humble, you don't need to have the validation in public of what you're doing in private. But I I don't think that's really what Christ is getting at. I don't think he's, I don't think he's satiating the natural man here, you know, of of like, you know, I I really want to have everybody know that I'm really doing good. So I'm going to do it in secret. So then Christ will show me that everybody that I'm doing things really good on the outside, right?
0: Yeah, I'd be curious about the translation of of this word. I I haven't looked this up, but you you bring up a good point. Like openly in English could have some some different meanings here, Um, not just in contrast to the secret, but also, you know, something more like liberally, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's almost more as if they are entering into, you know, the makarios, the, the being with God, so that who you are in private becomes who you are in public. There's no two different mm-hmm. kinds of people. And, you know, cause, you know it, that's a thing, right? Who we are in the quiet of our own home or even in the quiet of our own hearts is not the person we put on show, whether or not it's with our friends, our family, at church, right? You know, we love to put on great shows at church. That's not the time to go and air our dirty laundry to tell people that we're hurting, right? No, you go to church to be able to put on a show and to make sure that nobody knows what's going on in your life, right? And, and right. the people who do, do show that they're actually struggling at life, they're the people who are just airing their dirty laundry and, oh man, they're just such an energy drain, right? I've been in more wards where that's been the case. And it's sad that that's the case. But when we have it to where we're truly the same person privately as we are publicly, I see that a lot of the case here in this in this verse, that who we are there in the closet is going to be the same person we are in the open. It's just a unity with God. And that's that's the blessedness. That's the openness who, who are now blessed to us in the private as well as in the open where we, we are just one and one God in that thing.
0: Well, when I, I see verse 6, it's something that – it's one of those things that you ha- – when you read that, you have to be honest with yourself about it. Not just the verse, but the fact that it's telling yourself – it's telling you to be honest with yourself <laughs> right <laughs> to to go in secret and really pour yourself out. You know, you're you can't when you're in your closet and you're praying to God, there's nothing to lie about at all. And I, I've said it before, but I feel like prayer so often is like a process, at least the beginning of it can often start with sifting through all of the lies that we tell ourselves and and getting those out. It's almost like an emptying process, you know. Until we can can really struggle in the spirit, so to speak, to get to the truth, and that's done, you know, in in those moments when we're we're really having an experience and conversing with our Father, and um, not that I guess that could happen in public, but uh, it's so much better if it's in private. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that.
1: <laughs> right, nobody wants to hear that, right? I think, I mean, it's it's amazing that he's talking about personal private prayers in the closet, but now he's going to shift into the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. which all the pronouns that he uses are plural. There's no I in right. this, right? So now it's like, this is who you are privately. Now let me show you who you are publicly. And I, I love what you said there, Ben, about having prayer be the time when we just open up just everything. Everything. To God, You know, that end of day closing when we speak our trauma to God and we pour out everything, everything. And what a blessed moment that is when we can get on our knees and just say, God, this is what I'm going through today. And then just to put it out there and to put it on. And, and I've had experiences in my own life where I've, and I've known other people too, where I've come to the end of my rope. I've come to the end of this place where it's just like, I have no other solutions. And all I can do is get down on my knees and say, God, I have nothing left and I don't know where to go. I've got to put this into your hands and to just let that be the case and just just to leave it. And the powerful thing about that is I've received answers every single time, hardly ever, hardly ever in the way that I ever expected them, but always in a way that I knew it was him. And, you know, it's a very powerful thing. It doesn't mean that God solves everything, but when things do happen, man, you know right then God's in it. But in this, in the Lord's Prayer, and this is fascinating, everything here is in the plural. And, I, and before we read the Lord's Prayer, another thing that I, I've thought about over the years in this particular setting, as I've thought about what true prayer is and how a true prayer is uttered. You know we have uh, you know sports season comes around and we start praying for our sports team, right? <laughs> and more prayers are uttered for BYU football than than I, <laughs> than it's ever been answered. But the the funny thing about praying in this context, right? Praying for my country, praying for my my military, praying for my sports team. It, whenever we have sides, you know this reminds me. Mark Twain ended up writing just before he died. He ended up writing what was called the War Prayer. And it's a fascinating thing. I'm not going to go over the whole thing. I'll post it in the comments. But basically, it's the whole story. It's a short story. And he didn't want it published until after he was dead. In fact, he didn't want it published until after his kids had grown up much later because he he thought that the public pushback that he would get from that story alone would bring a lot of persecution onto his family. And he made he made some kind of quote that the, de, that the living are not allowed to tell the truth. You know, you have to wait until you're dead to tell the truth. And so this war prayer, if the listeners haven't heard this at all, I highly suggest you look this up. And as I said, I'll post a comment, a, a link in the in the comments below or in the in the website. But in the war prayer, it basically talks about how prayer is of a kind that there is often one prayer that is spoken, but there is often and most often a prayer that is unuttered in the way that we pray. And the war prayer is about finding ways to utter. And to give words to the unuttered prayer. And it's really powerful. But in this way, what I've recognized in the Lord's prayer here is that even in the unuttered portion, no matter how you take this, whenever the Lord answers any one of these things that you pray for, everyone is blessed. There's there's no bless my team to win because if my team wins, guess what the other team does? They lose, right? Mm-hmm. Bless my, my side to have victory. Well, that implies that the other side's going to lose, right? So there has to be a winning and a losing team. And when we pray in that kind of manner, we pit God against his children. And that includes our ego, right? Well, no, this is for an egoless individual who has gone through the process of the Beatitudes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Such a beautiful and a simple prayer. But in coming to answer it, it includes everyone. It's it's the pluralistic pronouns. We are all included in this. We are coming to our Father. We have a united voice. It's together. And in answering this, everyone is blessed. It's a very powerful thing.
0: You know, the Bible Dictionary has a good little section about prayer. I'm going to read a piece from it. It says here, As soon as we learn the true relationship in which we stand toward God, namely, God is our Father, and we are his children, Then at once prayer becomes natural and instinctive on our part. Many of the so-called difficulties about prayer arise from forgetting this relationship. Prayer is the act by which the will of the father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. The object of prayer is not to change the will of God, but to secure for ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant but that are made conditional on our asking for them. So I want to give a little caveat to that last part, and, and I'll talk about it in a second here. But the the part that always sticks out to me so much on this is, prayer is the act by which the will of the father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. I, I love this description so much because I, ha- I had a discussion with my wife about this just yesterday about prayers being answered. And you know, I'm still thinking through a lot of stuff, but I told her that I no longer believe in the the idea that the Lord answers our prayers in the sense that we ask for a particular outcome and then the Lord provides that in consequence to our prayers. What I see instead is that a true prayer where we are, what it says here, making our will correspond to that of the Father is that we are, have repented, and now we see reality for what it is, and we see God for who he is, and we see his blessings evident in the world everywhere. And so now all of a sudden, our fate or, or things that are going to happen haven't changed, What has changed is our perception of them. And now because of our humble prayer that our will has been brought into line with the Father and we've repented as a consequence of that, we now see blessings that we weren't able to see before or we weren't willing to see before. And so, yeah, I'm not so much into the answers to prayer type of thing anymore in, in in that way. Like I'm praying to get this job and then I get the job right? I'm much more interested in how the Lord answers prayers in terms of the repentance thing, changing our perception and bringing our will into line with his. Because like it says here in the Lord's prayer, it says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, his will is going to be done anyway. It's really a matter of whether we want to go along with that and understand it. The second part of this, where it talks in the Bible dictionary, it says, um, and and maybe this contextualizes it enough already. It says, to secure for ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant, but are made conditional on our asking for them. I would actually change that. I wouldn't say that, that the blessings are conditional, but I would say that our recognition of the blessings is conditional on our asking for them. And so often the very uh, fact that we don't even acknowledge or turn to the lord means that we don't see that so again it's it kind of ties into that that bible dictionary definition of repentance where we're changing our perception of reality to be in line with god and so then we're suddenly seeing all of this evidence of of his love around us so anyway i i love again that little part about how prayer is this bringing our will into line with his man that just fits so well with all of the scriptural examples of prayer of struggling in the spirit because we're just we're overcoming our own will and putting it in line with the father and how perfectly does that describe the intercessory prayer where Christ is praying with the father and it's the archetypal example perfect example of the will of the son being swallowed up in the will of the father um just beautiful and fits right in with what he's saying here with the the Lord's Prayer.
1: Wow, wow, yeah, that's that's some great stuff. Yeah, because that that really comes in that prayer almost becomes an act of repentance. Right,
0: every prayer, yeah, every
1: prayer is an act of repentance because it's bringing sure. us into that will of God. That's that's powerful. You know, there's a, a story that uh, I had today. When my my wife has been going through this this thing where she's trying to be more intentional in listening to promptings and messaging people whenever she feels, you know, prompted to message people and that whole thing. And she's, over the last little while, she's gotten a lot of responses back. And it's funny because whenever she sends, you know, she gets a prompting and she sends out these messages, you know, just encouraging messages to people that she, and my wife is so sincere about it too. And she sends out these messages. Inevitably, the same response comes back. The same response comes back and it says, Wow. Thank you for that message. I really needed that right now. Hmm. And we, we've been talking about this, and and just what you said there about prayer—like, do I pray for this, and then boom, it happens, right? And as I was talking with my uh, Rachel today, my wife, it came out that I don't know if that's what's actually going on. If the if those promptings mean that that person exactly needed so much as we always need that kind of affirmation in our life and whenever it comes out of the blue we never really know how much we need it until it's just there right and we're like oh yeah i really needed that i didn't know how much i needed that it's kind of like a back rub that you don't know you need and then all of a sudden it comes (laughs) along and you're like i really needed that i didn't and it loosens all the stress out and you don't you didn't even really know that you needed it i think that's the same like with prayer that you really come into this conversation of what is already going on and i love that how you pull that out with on earth as it is in heaven, that it, this is already God's will. This is already going on. It's us coming into what God is already doing, as opposed to mm-hmm. God trying to f- us trying to fit God into our box.
0: Right? Yeah, it's us entering his kingdom, so to speak, right?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Here in, for- in about forgiveness, there's these two little verses here about forgiveness I've thought about so many times over the years. If uh, This is chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. But if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. Okay. So this also goes in, I, I think, and there's another version in the, in Matthew that talks about, you know, I God will forgive whom I will forgive. You know, this is a DNC thing too, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's really fascinating how this is set up that this aspect of forgiveness is as we forgive, we are forgiven. But I've often asked myself, like, what does God need? What do we need God's forgiveness for? Did I did I do something against God? Did did I like hurt God of sin some sort? Did my sin actively hurt Him and He's like I, I need you to apologize to me so I can forgive you. And if you say you're sorry, I'm gonna forgive you for what you did to me. And I'm like, is God like personalizing everybody's everybody's sin? He's, I'm like, he's I,
0: wounded. Yeah,
1: he he's wounded. Have I have I wounded Him? And the answer to that question is just no. I he we don't we don't we don't. I'm not wounding God with my Sin. Now, a lot of the times you go like, okay, well, what about Jesus and the atonement? We'll get into that in a little while. But in this particular way, I see forgiveness really as a human construct. And there's a quote by Benson, Ezra Taft Benson, that I've used for years, and I've tried to find the source for it. and I, I just can't find it, and it frustrates me to no other. <laughs> but he said, and I'm paraphrasing, that he's tried to live his life in such a way that he's never had to forgive anyone of anything. In that, he never took offense to begin with, that he realizes that all things done, nothing is ever against him. And so he never has to even come to a place to forgive. And, and, and I've looked at that I'm like, wow, that's a, really, that's a really powerful way of looking at that. You know, forgiveness really does require that there was a slight, that there was an injury, that there was a harm. But going, this is beatitude stuff again, going back to the whole thing about the guy who is hit on the cheek. And the guy who sued at the law and the guy who's conscripted into slavery, they're not asking anybody to forgive them. They are proactively going out and suffering and sacrificing for the other. If someone comes to steal from me and I willingly give it to them, it's no longer theft. Like me as the victim has the power of whether or not this is going to be theft or charity. Like right then and there, I'm the deciding factor as the victim. And as I willingly give, you know, this is like Valjean and the the priest all over again, right? The bishop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got the power to do that. And so how do I then forgive in something that I've already forgiven where there hasn't been an injury? So in this particular case, to forgive men of their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. And, and I just look at this as being more descriptive than proscriptive. That as we live a life where we we willingly let roll off offenses that we've perceived because it's really our ego that perceives offenses right it's it's someone someone's story has violated my story about what i expected about what i threw up there what truth claim i held and someone violated that and i feel impeded upon now to soften this is forgiveness and it's and it's divine so we end up doing that and i think this has more, far more to do with as being a construct of man than of a nature of deity? Because at what point am I really injuring God the Father? Right. So I think it's just a little bit different way of looking at it.
0: Yeah. So uh, I think verse 15 fits in well with the, the idea that we've discussed before about, uh, again, repentance, uh, because repentance is tied with the concept of forgiveness. That when we're repenting, it's again, changing our perception of God. And so Forgiveness is sort of evidence that we have actually repented because we now see people as God sees them and forgiveness is just, it just comes naturally as a result of that, right? And yeah. so as we repent and we see God in a different way, then all of a sudden that, that forgiveness just comes. But, you know i it's not that we have wounded god but i i do still believe that there is sorrow associated with that right when when he sees us not enjoying the relationship with him that we could have there is mourning right not uh, and maybe we don't recognize it but i think there's mourning on his part and when we we can repent of that and come in to that then there's blessed are those that mourn for they shall be comforted, right? Because that forgiveness allows that the mourning is part of the repentance. And then what happens? Forgiveness and comfort, right? And so it's really tied into that beatitude as well. So again, verse 15, I I do see just like you said, uh, as more of a descriptive thing about our attitude and position in terms of uh, being able to uh, forgive as a result of our willingness to repent and it just it just changes our our perception of that and who the father is and and um, how we experience that
1: so verses sixteen through twenty three we can go through and talk about is there anything here in sixteen through twenty three that you've actually thought about because it talks about fasting the treasure and the light
0: uh yeah, so we briefly spoke about this. Um, I think in a chat, maybe a couple things back and forth about how um, there's sort of an Old Testament way of fasting and a New Testament way of fasting, and that so much as a church, we have been focused for a long time on sort of an Old Testament way, but that Christ has called us to this, what we call the higher law, right? Way of fasting, that it it isn't about this sort of, you know, painful sacrifice type of thing even though like the true meaning of the word is still there it's about this moment of of rejoicing it's about this moment of of finding joy in the small blessings that the lord uh, gives us every day of our life and so you know that's what i see i have 17 marked i don't know why and i i, I need to kind of sit with this for a little while and contemplate it but i for some reason I love these those little couplets, uh, this poetic couplet. But thou, when thou fastest, it just feels so personal that Christ is talking to me, you know. And he's saying, "This is the way the world does it, but you, Ben, I'm talking to you. But thou, when thou doest, you know, I've got something more for you." And uh, anyway, I just I love that phrasing there. It's it feels so personal and poetic to me. I think that's kind of all I had to say
1: about that. Going back to your what you said about the Old Testament, just just to bring that to the forefront. So, and I, you know, I was reading for another discussion group that we have on on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We were talking about these these verses in Matthew, and about fasting. And in several of the commentaries I have that I was reading, they all brought out that the Old Testament way of fasting was very specific to. Taking the money that you would have spent on your food for that day and giving it to the poor. Because, mm-hmm. you know, society is all based on one of the a priori concepts of the way civilization is based. It, one of those concepts is scarcity, right? We've talked about this before. This is one of the underpinning principles of all economics, supply and demand. It's all scarcity. And this was just a way to be able to provide for the poor amid scarcity without actually having to have more than what you already had. You can you can take the little piece of the scarcity that you had and still take care of the poor by giving what, what you would have eaten that day to someone and if you do it collectively, you can take care of them. So it was just really powerful. But once you get into the New Testament way of doing it, the New Testament way of fasting shifted. It was no longer about administering or taking care of the poor. It was done as a process of entering into a personal relationship with God in order to increase the ability of having prophecy and revelation. Because so this is really interesting, because as I'm reading these these biblical commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, I see the Old Testament way of doing things, which is very much in vogue in how the church operates and administers fast Sunday every the first Sunday of every month, right? That we're supposed to donate that fast the money for that fast to our offerings. But I, <laughs> but I also see that in Alma chapter 17, verse three, that we've already covered, that the sons of Mosiah fasted. To have the spirit of prophecy and revelation, and mm-hmm. so they weren't fasting to be able to give to the poor. they were fasting for a purpose of spirit of prophecy and revelation. so, as I'm reading these commentaries, I'm laughing because I realize that in the Book of Mormon, they're an Old Testament people, but they're doing it for the New Testament purpose, but then anyway, it was just a fascinating discussion.
0: well, yeah, I mean, the practice of giving the cost of those meals to the poor as a fa- as what we call a fast offering. I mean, I that certainly is has become very emphasized culturally, but I don't see much evidence in the actual revelations through the prophets that that is the main focus. But we've we've certainly culturally, like you said, made it that. And there's a lot of lot of things that have contributed to making that the cultural focus. Um, but I, I think it does go back to just the concept of. Of the Old Testament way of looking at it. I think generally as a church, one of the things that we do that does help culturally that we do that does help us look at fasting as more of a you know a New Testament way of increasing the spirit of prophecy is that we have that practice of having... A testimony meeting on the first Sunday of every month, you know, when it's supposed to be fast Sunday, it's supposed to be the there's supposed to be a testimony meeting. And that's supposed to be the, the when we do that, obviously, it doesn't always turn out that way. Um, you know, everybody has open mic, uh, funny stories and stuff. But that's <laughs> that is kind of the idea behind that, right? That we have that testimony meeting so that we can uh, sort of share in that spirit of prophecy type of thing that that is occurring as part of the the
1: fasting. So Well, that's really interesting. That's a great way to bring that in. All right. So in verse 24, we have the very famous scripture, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All right. So let's unpack this for a minute. Hmm. This is about, you know, now we have dualism. We have two masters. We have one on the one hand. We have God on the other. Now we have mammon on the one hand, you know, Symbolic of money or of or a physical physical prosperity or physical uh, the reliance of the flesh. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And gain. Yeah, gain, as it were. And you know, we can take this really far into one direction, but is more of a kind of like a mystic or contemplative way of looking at this. I I look at this and say that Mammon can really be just a placeholder for any piece of idolatry you know it, it's it's a big x for me you can really insert anything into this as a variable into this mix it's god or literally anything else right and yeah. I, I wrote a paper in college i think i think i've talked about it here maybe i talked about it over in uh in, over the, in the podcast with Riley, where it's uh, the it was for a philosophy of religion class where i entitled the paper on idol faith and on idol prophets so mm-hmm. when we have idol faith we make idols out of prophets anyway I thought it was clever wordplay. Yeah, I remember that...
0: reading that like 10 years ago. So.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be longer than that. But I, I have to credit my wife. My wife is actually the one who helped me wordsmith that one. But the <laughs> it just ended up being that I, I came to this realization, and it, this comes back to false gods we worship, you know, because it talks about idolatry. That that uh, 19, June 1976 talk from uh, President Kimball, that we've quoted quite a bit from, where literally anything can be an idol. Uh, my scriptures can be an idol. I, I, that was a tough one for me to come to. My scriptures being an idol. Do I place the dogma and the interpretations to the scriptures above my personal relationship with God? I've seen it done. And it, you know what? If I'm honest, I'm, I've done it myself. Where I've put my interpretation and in what I feel is coming out of the pages ahead of my personal relationship with God. And it's actually impeded my relationship with God. Right? So in this one, you cannot serve God and mammon. We can't serve two masters. It literally has to be, and that's where we go back to the Beatitudes and the, and the blessedness, the Makarios. This is the, this is the conversation of what it means to be with God. All of the Sermon on the Mount is about how to be at one with God. It's like an atonement. It's, it's how do we come into that unity and that and that, and uh, that oneness with the divine.
0: Yeah. So uh, this makes me remember conversations I had as a missionary and sort of a realization I came to as I had discussions with people who were uh, very focused on the scriptures as the word of God, referring to these as the word of God, the word of God. And as I was discussing this one time with them, I, I, it took me a second to sort of pinpoint why their insistence on constantly calling the scriptures the word of God, and it wasn't them calling the scriptures the word of God, but it was the implication that they were saying that I realized they were saying that the scriptures were God, and yeah. and I, I, I in that moment I I I realized, and I don't remember whether I said it or not. But I learned something and, and what it was was, yes, they may be the Word of God, but they're not God. And so uh, these people that I was talking with that had become their idol. And so focused were they on the words in the scriptures and proving truth by them that they had completely uh, overlooked and forgotten the Spirit. And, and what Nephi talks about where he says, you know, they, they will teach what they're learning and they will deny the Holy Ghost, which giveth utterance. And that the scriptures have a purpose and the purpose is not for us to focus on them in and of themselves. And it's kind of what we were talking about before with religious practices and when we can get so focused on those things, scriptures are that as well. And my brother will, will say sometimes, he says say, you know, the scriptures are less important for what they say than what they make us think or feel or experience, right? And I know this kind of goes to your your podcast you've had with uh, Riley about contemplation and, and Lectio Divina, but when we look at anything and, and you bring up scriptures as God and, and authoritative above you know, our actual experience with God, then uh, we're we're on a sandy foundation, as Christ would say, I think.
1: Right? Yeah. It, it, and it's really hard to try to really find all those little things in my life that I really do place above and beyond my relationship with God. And it, it's a process, right? I mean, that's what repentance is. It's just learning to see God in a new way. It's learning to see myself in a new way. and And just <laughs> being okay with that. And so, when I think about the beatitudes, you know, there, you know, there have been a few folks I know who've who've commented to me over the the last year or so. It's like it's like, so do we ever stop? You know, with the beatitudes, is there ever like a, an arriving? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, it's not. Like, like it's it, this goes on and on and on. And I have come to find so much joy in that because that means that my focus doesn't have to be on perfection as an action or perfection as, oh man, how am I trying to phrase this? It doesn't have to be perfection in the way that I am now perfect in doing the commandments. It means that now I am, I'm with a relationship with God where I'm literally fulfilling the measure of my creation as his child. And that for me is such a more, grand moment of awe that i can't can't even put words to it and so yeah it's it's really learning how to just sit with and be with god and then everything else follows you know i I told the story before about being on my mission and about how we were so super obedient with the cars we had a lot of cars we had fewer accidents suppose you know every mission has their story i don't even know if it's true or not there's no way for me to even verify if it was (laughs) true or not but let's say it is You know, maybe my mission had more cars than any other mission and maybe we didn't have any accidents. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter. But everybody loved the president, the mission president. They loved him. And you could see it in their eyes when they talked about him. So they did everything they could, not as a duty or an obligation or to try to be perfect in the rule itself, but just because they loved him so much that they wanted to express their love in every way that they could. And that's kind of one of the first things that I recognized at my young age, to try to make God like that. I love him so much that I just want to enter into that relationship and then have everything else follow that. To be converted first and then let everything else come from that, right? Yeah. So, in this, with uh, with uh chapter 25 through the end of the verse, uh, the end of uh, chapter 13, this is a really high... <laughs> This is this is a really controversial aspect of mm-hmm. the uh, the the sermon on the mount, right? Because this is where people have argued what well this doesn't apply to us. This only applies to the 12 apostles. And I'm like, well if it does <laughs> they're not doing this either, right? You know, because you know the, the, everybody knows they get a stipend, you know, for their own calling, right? And so mm-hmm. anyway, let's tackle this for a minute. In verse 25, And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked upon the twelve whom he had chosen, and he said unto them, Remember the words which I have spoken, for behold, ye are to whom I have chosen to minister unto this people. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Okay. So come to find out. This is a very Matthew way of being able to present this. I don't know how Joseph Smith was translating this, but Mm -hmm. from all the commentary that I've been reading on the Sermon on the Mount, as going from the the Matthew commentary, every, every single commentary that I've read says, this isn't exactly the best translation to say, take no thought. Because take no thought was a very King James way of saying it apparently in the early 17th century, where they began to say take no thought a better translation is do not be anxious because of well that's it-
0: a that's a you know that's a modern way of saying it too i'm not sure uh, what the connotations are for you know the joseph smith's time and how he would see it but if we were to do a uh, a uh, modern translation of the book of mormon is that a thing <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'd love to see what that looks it like. It better not
0: be, right? I
1: hope not. Oh, Dang, man. Can I, I, you imagine? I, yeah, no. Can you imagine
0: I, the controversy? Anyway, it, it, then, you know, certainly I, I would agree with that, you know, the the anxiety. Because, you know, take no thought. It, it really just doesn't make sense to say take no thought. I mean, uh, we actually even have examples from Christ's life where, you know, he, he had the people preparing food and stuff beforehand. You had people taking us you know? so like, It's not about not thinking about it. It's about it not occupying any of your God space, right? (laughs) We just, this comes right after verse 24, right? Where you cannot serve God and mammon. Don't let your concern with earthly things, don't let it get you so caught up that it's distracting you from your relationship with God. And that starts with things as simple and as essential to life as food and drink and includes everything else. But. As essential as those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and that's it. it. It's, it's, this is such a controversial verse. Yeah. And it's so unnecessarily yeah. controversial <laughs> because at this point, I guess we could even say it even in, in a more positive manner than don't be anxious. We could literally say, be at peace. So we can yeah, read that don't again. Don't worry, gonna, be yeah. happy. <laughs> <laughs> so Bobby McFerrin had it right. <laughs> Therefore, I say unto you, be at peace for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink nor and for your body what you shall put on is life not more than meat and body more than raiment right you just change that little phrase be at peace and all of a sudden everything else is like oh yeah i can go do all those things but it just means to be at peace about the whole thing life is more than just the clothes that i wear or the food that i eat be at peace about it right and all of a sudden everything clicks but man you include you make this whole take no thought for it you're like what am i not am i not supposed to ever think about it Right, you just <laughs> and all of a sudden we have a whole bunch of ascetics going out and just living their lives <laughs> naked and, and just trying to right. be, live on the top of poles for the rest of their life.
0: Right. So
1: yeah, I mean, and, and what I love about this too is that I don't even think that this is an economic discussion, and and, and it really kind of comes into an economic discussion, right, about you know food because the three big things you need, right, food, shelter, and fire and fuel, right, and he talks about pretty much all of those. He takes like the three biggest things we need to survive and he talks about those. But what I think has happened is that he uses these things as placeholders. The whole, you know, what you eat and what you shall drink and what you put on for your body. Those aren't the things in and of themselves I think he's talking about. I think he's using these things as placeholders to talk about a broader discussion. But we've used the placeholders as the discussion itself. We've thought it's about what we eat or what we drink or what we put on our body when it was never about that. Christ is talking about how we experience peace and he just picks these things because these are the things we have to deal with every single day. He uses these as placeholders as like examples of how to to do this.
0: Well, especially for ancient peoples, you know, so much of their lives, their daily, day-to-day lives were just focused on, you know, providing for their most basic needs. Uh, Goodness, we're living in a time now that's uh, as far as i can tell unprecedented in terms of its abundance where generally people are not in danger of starving if they don't go out and and work every single day you know to provide for that need and so so it's a little you know a little bit different of a of a scenario but, uh, in terms of the examples but the
1: the principle is is the same yeah because one of the things we, we do is when we, today in our audience, I was at the store today and it, it occurred to me as I was walking through as it, as it has so many times, but it was just another one of those experiences. Like I was looking like, look at the variety of what I get to choose from.
0: Yeah. Have you been in the chip aisle? Right. <laughs> Good grief.
1: There's, they have an just entire chip aisle just to chips. Just for chips. And you're like, I get to choose 10 different varieties of corn chips, right? Here's lime chips and here's like restaurant style chips yeah. and here's like yeah. here's chips in squares and here's chips in scoops and here's a chip in a in a, in a triangle. <laughs> like I ha- I I have varieties of shapes for my chips, right? And so we have so much opulence in how we can do this and we live in a day and age, but yet we live in such an an age of anxiety. We're right. through things like social media. We're we're more connected than we've ever been before, but in a certain sense we're less connected than we've ever been before. We live in a way that we have more prosperity and we have more stuff and we have more ability of being able to feed ourselves and to, and, and to to grow around, you know, the girth of our midsection because we're just eating so much and working so little that, but yet we're so stressed out. We have so much anxiety. We have, we have so much of these stories of our Americana and of just of Western civilization about how this is affecting us and impacting us. And we've we've lost our joy amidst all this opulence. It's just, it's so great. It's so incredible about how this works. And it really does come into frame here at the end of chapter 13. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added into you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient is the day unto the evil thereof. So again, there's that take no thought concept again, right? So let's rephrase that. Be at peace for tomorrow. For the morrow shall take care of the things of itself. Sufficient is the day and into the, the goodness or the evil thereof. In other words, be at peace. Tomorrow's going to be what tomorrow's going to be. You're not going to change yeah. tomorrow. T- tomorrow is an abstract idea. All you've got is the now, Right. Right. So yeah, here with- I,
0: I love that phrase, the sufficient is the day of the evil thereof. You know, like, yeah, tomorrow's going to be what it's going to be and live in your moment. You know, make sure you're not sacrificing, uh, the experience you could be having now because of some anxiety over what's going to happen tomorrow. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean don't plan and, and don't prepare. That's not at all what he's talking about here. It means don't. Don't let yourself be distracted from the current, the the now and the experience you're supposed to be having now.
1: Yeah. What's that famous story? I think it's Wilford Woodruff. I'm going to say it's Wilford Woodruff. It's either John Taylor or Wilford Woodruff, but I'm about 95%, but he's out there planting a tree, right? A, a fruit tree. I think it's a cherry tree. Might be a peach tree. Anyway, uh, he's planting some <laughs> variety <laughs> of edible, edible fruit, right? That's going to come from it. And, The early saints, they really did. They lived in this way of being, especially in coming out into Salt Lake, that they thought for a long time that Jesus was coming tomorrow, right? Or Jesus (laughs) Jesus is coming. If not today, he's definitely coming tomorrow. And so he's out there planting his, I'm going to call it his cherry tree. And someone comes up to him and asks, he's like, why are you planting your cherry tree? You know, Jesus, don't you believe that Jesus is coming? And the response was something to the effect of, I live my life every single day as though the Savior comes. But still today I'm planting a cherry tree.
0: Well, don't you think we're gonna want to eat cherries after Jesus comes? <laughs>
1: <I> mean, <laughs> he has celestial cherries. Think. I don't
0: I don't know what people think is gonna happen when the Savior comes, but like there's probably still gonna be a period where, you know, we might wanna eat cherries. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't get it either. But spending a little bit of time here on verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This phrase appears in a variety of ways, right? It appears in Jacob, appears in Matthew. We're commanded to seek first the kingdom of God. Before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. That's in Jacob. Hmm. And what I love about this, if I'm being completely and totally and 100% honest with myself, the majority of my adult life – I have not lived in faith, but at this point in my life, I've recognized that the difference of living in fear and living in faith is just paper thin. It's a breath of a difference, but Mm -hmm. I've literally thought that I've lived most of my life in faith when I was living in fear. And, And I'll give you an example. So when I've gone out to work, and I've tried to go out there and to conquer my little piece of the scarcity, you know, bubble there. You know, I'm thinking very Hobbesian here, right? Life is nasty, brutish, and short, and I've got to like scrape together and be at war with my fellow man to get Keeping my little piece. Keeping
0: nature at bay, yeah.
1: Right, and and going out there and getting my little piece of it because I I need to save for a rainy day, right? You know, what if I get in an accident? And I, people do, and bad things happen, and so yeah, we we need to be wise, but. To get up there and to and to hoard and to be able to stockpile everything I need to do for a rainy day, because of the fear of what's going to happen, i've always thought that this was an act of faith. I was being faithful to my leaders I was being faithful to my church leaders of being able to do these kinds of things and to live this kind of way to be prepared. But what I found was that over time that way of being caused anxiety and let and I had no peace. And so I knew I wasn't living by faith. See, as Richard Rohr says, the opposite of faith is not not fear. The opposite of faith is actually control. We seek to control the things we don't have faith in. And so in that way, I was. I was seeking to control the world around me, and I couldn't. And it caused anxiety because I was trying to control it to be one thing, and reality was another. Basic Stoic philosophy, I was being a horrible Stoic. So, in this particular way, I thought about this for a long time. Why are we commanded to build the kingdom of God first and then seek for riches? And, the, and especially in Jacob, because he says, and once you obtain riches, then you're going to basically just give them all away to the poor. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> what was the point of all of that? And, and it just it, it, finally, this one day, it was just like everything made sense. It was like everything got shuffled together, lined up perfectly, and I dealt it all out and it was in perfect, perfect suit and everything. And what it was is this. If I go out there on my own into the world and into this Hobbesian, nasty, nasty brutish, and short kind of world to get my piece of the pie, I'm going to simply live in fear, period. I'm going to control it. I'm going to fear it. And that's going to be my life. I'm going to have anxiety. I'm going to have, I'm just going to doubt my whole life. Do I have enough? But if I spend my time building the kingdom of God, I cannot do that in fear or control because you cannot build the kingdom of God in fear or control. You can only build the kingdom of God in faith. And the thought occurred to me, wow, is God literally trying to get us to build the kingdom of God first, because then we learn what it really is to live by faith. So that when we actually do go out to plant our cherry tree, it's not out of fear or control. We're just going out because this is what we do. Of course we're going to go out to work. Of course course we're going to go out to make a living. We're going to go till the fields. We're going to go live by the sweat of our brow. Of course this is the way it's going to work. But in building up the kingdom of God first, we learn to live by faith. So that when we actually get the money, we realize scarcity is not a thing in our lives that we have to fear. And then at Mm -hmm. that point, you freely give it away because you realize the source of all things is God. You live by faith, not by fear or control. And at that point, I'm like, oh, well, that makes so much sense. We literally, nothing in our life changes. We still go to work. We still do our lives. We still plan for the future. We still do everything that we're doing before. But what we did is we completely revolutionized and changed the heart by which we were doing it. And literally, the moment I made that realization, and it's it sunk It's a change down, in perception.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, it was. It was a repentance process. And the minute that happened, my anxiety, depression, concerning you know, do I have enough? Am I am I sufficient for my family? Am I working enough for my family? Am I stirring up enough for my? It all went away. It was incredible, and, and nothing in my life changed. Like, like nothing in my external world changed, but everything in my heart changed in the way that I looked at the world. And it was it was incredible. I love that. It's like that
0: what, uh, yeah. It's like what uh, President Kimball says. You know, something like if we spend all our time building up an earthly kingdom, seeking after the kingdom, that's exactly what we'll inherit. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Great. Okay, so we just spent an hour on chapter thirteen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, chapter fourteen is shorter, and then we'll 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 uh, we'll do a, a gloss over on fifteen and sixteen. But man, the Sermon on the Mount is so much where it's at. And I'm thinking of all the things we're told. The pinnacle of everything is the is Christ's sermon on the mountain, his visit to the Nephites, and then we're given like three weeks, and and then we don't read about it again until we're given another well, one I, week. Well, yeah, I mean, the sermon
0: sermon on the mount is, is it's great, you know, these profound teachings and everything. But we're going to be getting into some chapters that talk about what Christ actually does among the people, and. These are just as, just as amazing in terms of, uh, you know, he just talked about it and now he's going to actually show them. He's going to actually, you know, demonstrate how to, I don't even know, like you just have to see it, right? You just have to actually observe Christ acting. He taught and now he's going to actually act and then you have to just see that so that you experience
1: that. Isn't that a powerful way to be able to teach though? I mean, with the Beatitudes, he's like, listen, this is what kind of person you have to be. Now that I've told you what kind of person you have to be, let me go out and explain about what this looks like in real life. Okay. Now that I've told you what this looks like in real life, let me be able to actually do it for you. And then, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you have the rest of it. (laughs) You're like, wow, what a great teacher.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: All right. So here in chapter 14, judge not lest you be judged. Oh my goodness. This is, a, this is as controversial, unnecessarily controversial as the other one. <laughs> All right. And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he turned again to the multitude and did open his mouth. It's again saying verily, verily, I say unto you, judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge shall ye be judged, and with what measure ye meet out shall it be measured unto you again. Okay. So in the Matthew version, in the Joseph Smith translation, it says, judge not unrighteous judgment. But here in the Book of Mormon, we don't get that clarification, so it's the same in the Book of Mormon here as it is in the Old KJV translation, without the Joseph Smith edition. So the Joseph Smith translation isn't in the Book of Mormon. So we, we still have the the KJV definition here, but this is where I'm like, this is not, this is not, this shouldn't be controversial. Yeah, this- I
0: mean, the word judgment can imply the word righteous, so like, I don't. Uh, you know, it's a helpful uh, sort of indicator as to specifically what he's talking about. But um, when we take it in the context of, of all of other Christ's other teachings, you know, like it fits. So,
1: yeah. And usually, and what I found, and this is really sad is that when that argument is brought up, well, no, it doesn't say that it says judge righteous judgment. What that basically means for most people is my ego is Right. And what I think is true, and what I think I need to judge is righteous, and therefore this is self-affirming that I believe this and I can go out and fight for it. That's that's usually what that translates into. But we have to realize that whether or not it's judge not or judge not right, unrighteously, all of this is about a beatitude person who's left mm-hmm. their ego behind. You can't right. come to here with being full of what you think is... Of chest thumping and what you think is right, and then go out against your perceived enemy and, and be able to land base that, right? You can't be a conservative and land base a liberal or a liberal land basing the conservative. You can't go out there and otherize whatever small social minority group is out there because you think they're immoral or improper or not doing it right and be like, I'm judging righteous judgment. They're doing it evilly. Is evilly a word? <laughs> <Right>. unrighteously <laughs> they're doing it unrighteously <laughs> so in this way no it's if we go out and this this really gets into the uh, the taking of the name of God in vain I think has a lot to do with this when we go out and we claim God is on our side and we're doing something in God's name that God would never support if he were here that's more of what it means to take the name of God in vain than to simply go out and shout some expletive right and so in this particular way if you go out to judge people on a standard that is not a righteous standard that becomes what you are then held by. You want this one scripture? Now now this really makes sense in American politics and for any of listeners that are outside of an American context this may not land as much. But there's a political philosophy called libertarianism which is basically just means you do you and I'll do me, right? I, you just I, I I don't want to use the government to coerce you. Don't use it to coerce me. And, <laughs> and I specifically adopted that like fifteen, twenty years. How how many years ago it was? Because of this verse, I'm like, if I'm going to be held to judgment about what I judge on other people, I got I got myself an ace up the sleeve with this one. I'm <laughs> not going to judge anybody, <laughs> and I got to right. get out of jail free card. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Well there's something to that, right? <laughs>
1: oh, maybe I don't know. I'll I, take it up, the, I'll take it up with know, Jesus it, later.
0: Yeah. Um it as as analytical and intellectual as it gets, I believe Elder Oaks he had a talk about, you know, all the different types of judgments and, and stuff and the condemnation and intermediary judgments and stuff like that. It's it's a it's an interesting talk and he talks about this, but the main point that I think is valuable that he makes about it is is specifically the type of judgment uh, that we need to be withholding is any condemnatory judgment. Anything like you said, you know, that would be putting ourselves blasphemously uh, in the place of God by pronouncing something final upon a person because we have no uh, understanding of their heart and uh, cannot put ourselves in that place. Besides the fact that uh, Christ actually his atonement was for them as well. And so for us to to pretend that we have uh, the ability to discern that is, is definitely blasphemous. so
1: Yeah, I think and that's a perfect lead into the next few verses where we talk about the mote and the beam. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? but when thou considerest no, the, the beam that is in thy own, and I, I love this imagery. A moat is like a little speck of dirt, right? Like the smallest little speck of dirt, something that may or may not even cause irritation in your eye. But yet the beam is literally like a two by four that's being engorged out of your forehead, right? And I think it's the same thing. That It's that judgment, that unrighteous judgment that we think we have the pure eyesight to be able to see. But yet we're the ones who are really the ones holding the uh, the prideful position. So yeah, I think what you just said fits perfectly right in there. Or wilt thou say unto thy brother, let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam of thine eye, and then shalt thou see clearly and cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Great advice.
0: Well, I like there how the point here is, uh, that he's telling the people is ultimately to help your brother, right? Not to condemn them or "Quote unquote," judge them because of some sort of sin or fault that they have. But ultimately, it's that you cleanse the inner vessel first. You look to yourself. You say, Lord, is it I first before you would even have the ability to look clearly at another person and be able to pick out their faults and know how to even necessarily help them with those sorts of things. Or give them stern advice. <laughs> um, right. Uh, otherwise, you're just there to uh, mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort type of thing.
1: Yeah. So here in verse seven, ask and ye shall it, it shall be given unto you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. This is highly reminiscent of James 1, right? 1, 5 for everyone that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh findeth and him that knocketh it shall be opened or what man is there of you who has a son ask bread and will give him a stone or if he ask for a fish will give him a serpent if ye the if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much shall your father who is in heaven give good things that ask of him you know this is this is really fantastic and when in the moments of contemplation this sounds like it is, should just be absolute common sense, but it's in my experience that when I, when I come to God, and I've often had a problem, and I'm pouring out myself in whatever way I'm, I, I, I am at that point, and he responds, or, or I recognize it as a response, or an answer comes or in a way that I'm now coming into the conversation with God, like we were talking about earlier with prayer. I've recognized that sometimes I have thought that the solution will be one thing and God is showing me something else completely different. And so I'm asking for a fish and I feel like I'm being given a serpent. But in reality, what I'm coming to God with, a, I'm coming to God and I'm, I'm coming into the conversation with the divine, realizing that there is something that I'm experiencing that I want, I'm looking for resolution for. I'm looking for something, comfort, anything. And God really connects me to where it goes. So in this particular way, we can look at this and say, well, yeah, that just makes a whole lot of sense. If you got out if you ask for a fish, God's going to give you a fish. If you ask for bread, he's going to give you bread. But I, I don't think that I think the complexity of this is deeper. The Lord really does give us what we need. And things that we we really I, and here I am talking in this language again because I love so much what you said before. It's not like God's like throwing these little blessings at us of like the things we need. We're coming into the conversation and through the repentance process, we are entering into a new relationship with God. That we are now beginning to see what is truly necessary for us to experience, what we need to experience, to leave what we need to leave, right? And we begin to see that maybe what is maybe what needs to shift is not what we we thought needed to shift. And so, yeah, these these verses for me have kind of changed meanings for me throughout uh, the last several months as I've read them.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting here, and maybe I'm reading a little too much into it. He says, if a man uh, – if his son asks bread, we'll give him a stone. If his son asks fish, we'll give him a serpent. He doesn't say that the Lord will give you exactly what you ask for. What does he say? He says, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things To them that ask him. Yeah. And so I have found that more often than not, when I go to the Lord in prayer asking for something, the answer is your question is wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've had that too. And
0: how do I arrive at that? It's through that repentance and prayer process where my will is that this is the question and you give me the answer to this question. And really what the prayer ends up being is, okay, what question should I ask? And I'll tell you what. what is so, to me, miraculous about this process is as soon as I figure out, and I don't even know if it's me figuring it out, because what's so amazing about prayer is that it's, again, it's that bringing into line the will. So it's not so much me figuring it out as it is me just coming to a realization or being willing to see what God has there for me. But as soon as I'm going to say it anyway, as soon as I figure out what the question should be, I immediately know the answer. The answer becomes wrapped with the question. As soon as I get the question, right. And so much about answers to prayer and struggling with that is because I'm asking the wrong question, but I often have to start there or I often start there anyway, right? Because I, I'm coming to the Lord with all of this, this ego and and baggage stuff. And, and part of the process is getting rid of that and, and getting to the right question. But when I get to the right question, then the answer seems to be already rolled up with that because part of getting into the, into that part of arriving at the question is becoming my will becoming in line with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, it's not really a question anymore, right? It just, it's reality. I'm just perceiving reality. So like I, again, I might be reading too much into these verses, but I like how he says, you know, if your son's asking for bread, or if your son's asking for a fish, you know, you're not going to give them the opposite of what they're asking for. You're not going to give them something that doesn't satisfy their needs, but you may not give them exactly what they're asking for because- you might need to have a discussion with them first, right? (laughs) Right. I I don't know how many times our children will go to my wife and be like, you know, hey, I want, you know, can I have a candy bar? Can I have this? And and my wife's like, stop. Are you hungry? (laughs) Yes, you're hungry. Okay, eat some food. (laughs) Uh, You know, instead of uh, treats or snacks or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, there you go. See, you – you thought that's what you wanted and what you needed. But when you finally got into a state where you could have a real conversation and the Lord can really open your mind and, and, and ha- let you really process what it is that you need, then you can arrive at that better. So,
1: I loved what you said about questions. That that really, that's been my thing for the last several, couple years anyway. I've come to love good questions more than i even want answers because mm-hmm. the experience is that what and, and i've said it before when i've had questions before that i've taken to god i know they don't leave the ceiling kind of a thing and i'm like oh man that question sucked and, <laughs> and like i need to reevaluate that i i do i i it's like okay well what question do i need to ask and then there's sometimes when i ask a question and i've explained it as man that question goes right to the throne of god and it's like the Holy Ghost or like the, the spirit or whatever confirming, you know, entities been next to me. And I'm like, that was a good question. Yeah. And like this entity next to me is like, yeah, it really was. That was an awesome question. I'm like, I know it was. Just asking the right question invokes an answer. And sometimes it's it's an answer that's not an answer. Let me give you an example is uh, my wife came up to me. Uh, have I said this before? I, it's hard to keep track because I talk to so many people. but when. She came up to me and she asked me this question, and it's a contemplative, meditative question. But it goes something like this What choices in your life would you have made different if you knew you really knew you were always already loved? I'll repeat it again. What choices in your life would you have made differently if you knew? You really knew you were always already loved. And when she asked me that, and I sat with that for a minute, the first time I heard that, that, that went right into the center of my heart. And it, it just it floored me for a little bit because I started, just going back on a few of the moments and the few like the, the big moments of my life and the, some of the big choices that I made, I could pinpoint every single one of them. And I'd be like, yeah, I made that in fear. I made that not really thinking and feeling that I was completely and fully loved. What would I have done differently in that moment? And then the next question is, what choices will you make now knowing that you're always already loved? And it's these kinds of questions that, for me, Begin to awaken and experience with God that just by asking the right question, you' like, wow, there is really something here to experience that i couldn't i just I couldn't even fathom to experience before, right so this goes in you know we have the the golden rule here in verse twelve, therefore all things whatsoever thou should do to men or that men should do to you do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then we come down here to this other verse. Towards the end of chapter fourteen, and it's one of my favorites it's in Matthew seven here in chapter fourteen. But it says, "Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven." See, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know, this word iniquity is is a fascinating word. In Latin, to negate anything, you add the prefix in, in, in front of it. So sufficient is insufficient and capable Mm -hmm. is incapable. Here is no different. Um, This is negating the word equity. So equity is inequity, and they conjugate the e to an i. So now we have iniquity. So it's iniquity is the lack of equity. And, and equity in the scriptures talks about kind of the true value or the source of your desires. What is the true value or the source of where your desire comes from? It's kind of like the same place about where your faith comes from. And so in this, it's that people have done great things. People were saying to me, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Like, you got people out there casting out devils. I mean, that's pretty crazy. You got people out there doing many wonderful works. That's pretty crazy too. But their heart was never in the right place doing it. That iniquity factor there, we, we often say iniquity is the same as sin. It's not. Sin is the actual action. Iniquity is a state of being. Mm -hmm. Iniquity talks about this way of being that you, you know, I can take brownies to my next door neighbor and I can do that Righteously, or I can do that with iniquity. Maybe I want to be seen bringing brownies to my neighbor. Maybe I, I want my neighbor to think that I I'm kind. Maybe maybe there's an ulterior motive to it. Or maybe well, if you're I'm
0: repenting just- every day. You know, from the sins that you gave. Then you're not. You know, constantly living in that iniquity. What What did Jake Golden Kimball say? You know, he repents too damn fast. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it's the exact same thing. So yeah, this iniquity, it's a very fascinating uh, set of verses to me because a lot of people are like, yeah, well, you just have to do what the Lord tells you to do. You just have to keep the commandments. You just have to do the right things. Hmm. Well, he says, well, no, he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven is qualified from those who are not workers of iniquity. That to truly do the will of the Father means you do it with the right heart,
0: right? And that goes back to the Lord's... Prayer and this discussion we've had about you know bringing our will into uh, you know into, into alignment with the will of the Father. So,
1: yeah. Okay, so here here towards the end of the of the verse, therefore, whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat down upon his house, and it fell not, for he was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them shall not shall do them not shall be likened unto a foolish man who buildeth his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat down upon the house and it fell and great was the fall thereof. You know, for me this goes back to the last beatitude about being persecuted, you know. If I'm going to go out there and I'm going to put my house on top of sand and the winds come down and the rains and the the the, the waves come crashing down, you know there's persecution, and then there's a persecution complex. And I've noticed a lot of the times what we think is persecution is us building our house on Sandy Foundation and then claiming persecution when the when the elements come and topple it down. A lot of the time, persecution isn't what we think persecution is, right? So in this way, it becomes a way of being able to go through the beatitudes to be able to realize. Who and what we are as people, going through the whole steps from being poor in spirit into being peacemakers, that's the foundation. That's what it means to be a Christ-like person. So when we go back to Helaman uh, 5, you know, the very famous verse in Helaman Mm -hmm. about building upon the rock and uh, and that rock is Christ in in, uh, 512, that that is that foundation that we're building on. It's the actual foundation of building on who and what Christ is, as opposed to trying to fake it. And that's why I think the beatitude to be pure in heart is so powerful there and so important there. It just, it's, you can't fake this. You literally can't fake this. Both people are building houses. Both people have the facade of building this great place. One of them is building it on a correct foundation. The other one's building it on sand. And when the one with the corrupt foundation crumbles, they're going to claim persecution. It's not the same thing though. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I see that here that, that Christ in these chapters has laid out the foundation. And if if we do that, then these chapters to come, you know, we will see so much more meaning in what is about to happen and what we're about to experience. We can certainly see and experience and read about all these other things, but until we've actually, gone through that beatitude process and experienced these first things that he talks about um, the foundation isn't there for for all these other things that he's going to teach the people or he's going to have them experience in terms of the miracles and the teachings about his coming and the prophecies and so forth all of that stuff is great but that that's not the foundation right that's That's the the beautiful house that we like to experience and and take part in, but it's it's all for naught if we don't have this foundation.
1: Right. So from here on out, in chapter 15, we have this wonderful overview now that this basic sermon is concluded. So this is the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Temple. These are the comprising chapters where we can compare back and forth. But now we enter into a new way of what Christ is talking. He's he's talking about the law of Moses, because there's a lot of conflict. Because when he comes up to the people of, of in the old world, he's he's acting as a new type of Moses. You know, this is very much the Matthew way of writing to show that, that Christ, the Messiah, is the new Moses. That you've heard it have been said that Moses saith this, but I say unto you this. And so there's this new Moses vibe. And the people of Nephi here in the Book of Mormon, are picking up what he's laying down. And so there's this question, and he's like, listen, in verse 3. And he said unto them, Marvel not that I said unto you that all things had passed away, and that, all, and that all things have become new. Behold, I say unto you that the law is fulfilled that was given unto Moses. Behold, I am he that gave the law, and I am he that covenanted with my people Israel. Therefore the law in me is fulfilled, for I have come to fulfill the law, and therefore it hath an end. Behold, I do not destroy the prophets, for as many have not fulfilled in me, verily I say unto you, shall all be fulfilled. And because I said unto you that old things have passed away, and I do not destroy that which has been spoken concerning that which is to come. For behold, the covenant which I have made with my people is not all fulfilled, but the law which was given unto Moses now hath an end in me. Right? So now we have this new covenant The difference between the Old Testament and the Old Covenant with the New Testament and the New Covenant, which now we see this coming in. A lot of this was described in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we get to see the manifestation of what this was actually supposed to produce here in the next few chapters.
0: So that next verse, verse 9, really basically sums all this up so much of what the people have been doing is looking to this written law in the scriptures, which is important and useful. Uh, But Christ is saying, most importantly, you need to look at me. He says, behold, I am the law and the light. Look unto me and endure to the end and ye shall live for unto him that endureth to the end will I give eternal life. This kind of goes back to our discussion, you know, about serving two masters, God and mammon Christ saying, Hey, the law is supposed to lead you to me but this is the point me look to me and don't let other things distract you from that
1: yeah i think the modern day equivalency to this and i am in no way whatsoever so we don't don't misunderstand anything i'm about to say i'm not disparaging any rites rituals or ordinances but the fact is is that as we've said i've said so many times before we've become a culture that believes that the point of the rites and the rituals the ordinances like sacrament and baptism and our temple our temple worship, that the point of the experience is the ritual, right yeah we we think that it's the point is to take the sacrament that the sacrament's the actual thing we're supposed to do that that's the thing we're supposed to experience, and the point is like no, that is only symbolic of another experience we're supposed to have. Right. Right? Because it's the the blood and water, the blood, (laughs) it's a symbol of a symbol and I keep on messing them up. (laughs) So you got the bread and the water and it's symbolic of the flesh and blood, which is symbolic of something else. Like we got symbols on top of symbols on top of reality. Right. So in this, this is what I'm seeing that we can literally become like the Jews of the Old Testament who they were obeying the law because that was, they that's what they thought the experience was supposed to be in just obeying the law. But Christ is like, no, you are supposed to go out and have the experience in your life that the law typifies and symbolizes. In our day, it's no different. The temple rituals, our baptism, our sacrament, these are all typifying of other real life experiences. In fact, the whole temple ceremony is nothing but a a symbolic journey that we have. Baptism is our first step in being poor in spirit and in killing ourselves off, you know, killing off the old person and the new person coming forward. And it's the entire symbolic journey of our presence into the celestial area where for everyone who's been to the celestial room and has been in the temple ceremonies realizes that in the celestial room, you just sit there. <laughs> right. It's just a place where you sit and it's a contemplative space and it's a beautiful Quiet, silent, contemplative space. And that is the journey that we go through. It's just a symbolic journey of our spiritual progression. But we have to actually be experiencing those things in our lives. And yeah, that verse nine is powerful. I am the law, I am the symbol. And you take yourself upon my name. Now you have the name Christ upon you. Now you experience everything that I just went through. And now you know what it means to be human because Christ is now the archetype of our humanity.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, what what you were saying about the temple was exactly the point that that I was going to make. We as a church and as a culture, we are very – this is brought up in a lot of talks and everything – we're very temple-centric, right? And so much emphasis and focus is put on the temple. And that's good as long as, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, we don't make that religious practice in and of itself the focus. What is the point of the temple? The point of the temple is to help us symbolically experience uh, something that we should be experiencing in real life, truly experiencing a relationship where we're going through a journey and uh, learning a way to come closer to God and to Christ. And just like you said, what ultimately is the culmination of all of this symbolism and everything that we do in the temple, we sit in a room and are quiet. <laughs> you know, it's like, if if the point were the symbolism and the rituals that we just went through, that's super anticlimactic, right? We really need to step back and say, that was not the point right now is the point and or it's symbolically the point which is even more <laughs> interesting right like right. it can be the point but so often it's not and if we can't make it in reality the point we should we need to recognize at least more often than not that it is symbolically the point we should we striving to get ourselves into a position where we can just experience those moments where we're in God's presence and, and have that. And we really can always be there if, if we will simply, you know, choose that. But uh, yeah, I, I love what you said about, about that. And it kind of ties the whole thing together about what we've been talking about with, christ saying these religious practices but saying ultimately me i'm the point you know and look to me and pattern your your life and your experiences after what i'm teaching you and showing you to do
1: yeah you know president ballard came and and i know the church has, has tried to put a lot of emphasis on not talking about state conference visits And so, I'm not going to put a lot of words in his mouth, but it's come down. So, I live in Bakersfield, California, and currently Mm -hmm. we don't have a temple, but our Mm -hmm. three stakes in Bakersfield really do comprise a lot of the work and a lot of the travel that goes on in that Los Angeles temple. So, we we do a lot of work down there. So, we have to go across this really crazy mountain pass called the Grapevine, which is one of the scariest bits of like highway you will ever travel. You have to do
0: that driving in an air-conditioned car, that sounds awful.
1: Yeah. It, <laughs> it sounds so it, it's, hard. It's completely you must awful.
0: must really be going through some
1: trials. It is so tri- – there's so many trials. <laughs> so, you know, it, anyway. Los Angeles is two and a half hours away, and, in, and the L.A. Temple's in Santa Monica, which is about two and a half hours from Bakersfield. And so, we go through this area, and, and it really is a treacherous – I'm going to use treacherous. Can I use treacherous in the modern-day example of the US, <laughs> U.S. highway system? But, you know, going back and forth, and we have so many wonderful – um, senior couples who go down there, who make this travel back and forth. And to date, I don't think anyone's been in an accident, even though they have accidents there all the time, because it is so steep. It's one of the steepest grades I've ever been on. And and so in this traveling back and forth, so we're always begging for a temple in Bakersfield, just because, I mean, everybody does. It's like, I would love to have a temple. And when President Ballard came and someone had asked what we can do to get a temple, he, you know, He made a few obvious quips, but one of the things he says, you know, temple service should be one of those things that you do just enough that you remember your covenants. And I thought, wow, Hmm. that completely revolutionized the way that I saw my temple service. I need to go to the temple as often as I need to remember my covenants. And that's it, which goes back to exactly what we're talking about here, because it becomes... How often do I need to come back into that moment of going through that going through that ceremony and that whole thing to remember what it is that I'm supposed to be thinking about in real life? Right. That's it. That's the point. And so long as I'm in that conversation and I'm going there as often as I possibly can to be in that conversation, that's what it needs to be. There's the practicality version of it, right? Right. In me, I am the law, I am the ritual, I am the rite, I am the ordinance. I think that law there, I think you could really put everything that we, we do symbolically in that. as a. As well,
0: he's a, Alpha and Omega. He's everything, right? So we could put any any word in there.
1: Right. Look unto me, endure to the end, and you shall live. So absolutely beautiful. So here in, in uh, chapter 16, we have the lost sheep. We have some talking about Zion and, and the Gentiles and this relationship between the Gentiles and and about the sheep,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I am commanded to you that, you, and I command you that you shall write these sayings after I am gone. And if it so be that my people at Jerusalem, they who have seen me and with me in my ministry, do ask the Father in my name, that they may receive a knowledge of you by the Holy Ghost, and also the other tribes whom have, that they know not of. That these sayings which ye shall write shall be kept and shall be manifested unto the Gentiles, and through the fullness of the Gentiles, the remnant of their seed. And who shall be scattered forth among the face of the earth because of their unbelief may be brought in, or may be brought to a knowledge of Me, their Redeemer. You know, I I thought, what what's really the point? I mean, come on, a- after like two thousand years of separation, like, do we really have family ties that go back that far? I mean, it's, it, are we really be like you know, cousins? You know, it's it, like cousins, like. <laughs> a thousand times removed and, and you're like what really what's the point i mean we all have the same common and i yeah. depending you know if you ask anybody like where are where's our common ancestor they'll be like you know africa you ask in latter-day Saint, they're gonna be like missouri so yeah why if, are we
0: still talking in terms of literal descendant of this person or that person why does that matter
1: right but what i think the ultimate point here is and maybe i'm missing a broader narrative and, and i accept that but for me what's coming out in verse four Is that the unity that is supposed to be binding here, the unity between the Jews there, the unity between the Gentiles, the unity between all of God's people all over the earth, is simply that we are all brought into the knowledge of their Redeemer.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's the point. It's like we will all come into a place where we all have that shared in common.
0: Well, and I think, you know, this discussion raises that question almost rhetorically on purpose. Like, Why are you talking about all these different peoples? Yeah, why? Why? Because you think that's important. And so I'm talking about it this way to get you to realize that what's really important is that everyone is a child of God and needs to come to a knowledge of me, their redeemer. And so ultimately, in the end, where he gets to with all this is it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, or whatever. You all have to come to a knowledge of me. Your redeemer, and you need to put away those identities, and you need to take upon yourself my name, and you need to be my sheep, and I will gather you. I love um, how he ends up with this. You know, basically talking uh, these people—they're—they're they're shedding their identity as Nephites, and they're becoming one people, just the people of God. They try to figure out, well, what should we call ourselves? Christ says, why aren't you calling yourself by my name? That's what I told you to do. Call yourself by my name. Don't call yourself by any other name. You're mine. And, um, and so he, he's going through all of these, these groups though of, of Jew and Gentile, right? And, and the culmination of every single one of these discussions is that no matter who the people are, they all need to come to a knowledge of their Redeemer, just like you were saying. I love verse 10. And thus commanded the Father that I should say unto you, at that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts above all nations and above all the people of the whole earth and shall be filled with all manner of lying and of deceits and of mischiefs and all manner of hypocrisy and murders and priestcrafts and whoredoms, And of secret abominations. And if they shall do all these things and shall reject the fullness of my gospel, behold, saith the Father, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. Okay. So it might be too controversial to say, but like to me, this, this, and it's, you know, America is not the only nation this describes, but this definitely describes America. Right. America is the quintessential Gentile nation, right? And now there's others, but. This is describing America, and it's describing others as well. And <clears throat> so uh, let's let's look. And what, what of these things are prevalent in our society right now? What ones might be getting worse? What is our responsibility as individuals um, in this context? Well, Christ says it over and over again, to come to a knowledge of the fullness of my gospel and to come to a knowledge of me as their redeemer. This last phrase in that verse, he says, I will bring this fullness of my gospel from among them. I used to think that meant that the Gentiles would lose the fullness of the gospel. That doesn't seem now to me that's what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that the Gentiles, if all of this happens, which, no, he doesn't say if, he says when. (laughs) He says (laughs) when all of this happens, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. They will be the people who are responsible for also being a light on the hill to uh, share the gospel with the whole world because of the condition of the nation. They will have to go out into the world, what we might call missionary work or whatever, but the responsibility uh, of them will be to then carry the gospel to others. Uh, so anyway, I, I see that as a little different. Bring the fullness of my gospel from among them. To me, it doesn't mean take it away. It means that's where it's going to come from. And he says in the next verse, I will remember my covenant, which I've made into my people.
1: And I think there's a lot of way that that ends up being fulfilled. Because when we start talking about the millennial reign and we start talking about Zion and about how this Gentile nation is going to establish that that Zion and to do that. We have it here at the very end where Jesus in 17 verses 20 through the end of the chapter of 16, we says, And then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled, which say, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, and the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring Zion again Zion. Bring forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, for he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Now, <laughs> there's a lot of things that stand out to me about that, but one of the things that is here about this, the watchmen seeing eye to eye, as if they mm-hmm. haven't, but now they're mm-hmm. seeing eye to eye. Now things that have been in dualism, now that things have been separated, now everything comes into a unity, and the Lord brings about Zion. And then what stands out is verse 20. Because it reminded me about something we talked about when we went over Alma 9. But when it says that in all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God, that reminded me when we talked about the glory of God and about when Christ comes in, you know, in, in, in his glory and when he comes to redeem Zion and when he comes to, and, and that all gets established. But we tend to think about the glory of God and this whole establishing the salvation of, of everything as being this huge metaphysical event where clouds and angels, and, and that's how it's always you know, shown in, in uh, art, right? Right. But in Alma chapter 9, in verse 26, it says, And not many days hence the Son of God shall come in his glory, and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, and long suffering, who is quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. That, well, that in which is the Gentile nations will do to bring about and to do this, to have the salvation of God come to all the earth to establish Zion in the glory of God, is to focus in on grace and equity and truth and patience and mercy and suffering, in hearing the cries of the people and answering their prayers. This is most of the Beatitudes we've talked about here, right? Grace, mm-hmm. equity, truth, patience, mercy— you know that all of those are encompassed within the the beatitudes, so yeah it's it's everything's come full circle now we're Christ is now coming with his kingdom, his kingdom is now brought about by the Beatitudes. now we're beginning to see the salvation of our God, and now he's showing about how this interrelationship between the Gentiles and the Jews are all gonna work, and it's absolutely beautiful thing
0: it is um ultimately like i s like I said, I see. The point of this chapter as him, as Christ, finally um, telling them to let go of their old identities and to uh, be united as a people to build Zion and to do it under his name, you know, as they're taking upon themselves his name.
1: Absolutely. Well, Ben, we have now gone longer than I... (laughs)
0: <laughs> I thought
1: our plan too, but you know this the Sermon on the Mount, I knew we we're gonna spend more time on it. Um, I knew I, I knew you knew that I knew we would spend more time on it. So this is fantastic. Uh, we're gonna get into the next several chapters next week and from there it's just it's good because now we're gonna start Beautiful. to see everything that, that Jesus actually brings to the people. What, what the experience of being like Christ actually is. And man, that's going to be a great. As
0: far as they can explain it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And words cannot describe everything that happened, but, but it was kind of sort of like this, but you don't even get it. You'd have to experience it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, Ben, I've had a great discussion and uh, there are a lot of things for me to think about. So let's do this again next week. Yes. All right. Well, until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you everybody for listening.